people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Mes chers amis, je vais avoir le plaisir de vous présenter ma dernière acquisition. Et elle est l'aboutissement de ma carrière. Je crois que la chose vous plaira. Je vous les juge. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Otto Bruno. Good evening, Mike. Thanks for having me. Also in the booth is Mr. Robert Bellissimo. Hello, everyone. Bonsoir. Thank you for having me, Mike. French Month continues with a look at Jean Renoir's Rules of the Game. Released originally in 1939, the film was based on Alfred de Musset's La Caprices de Marianne and Skewer's French Nobility in a Comedy of Manners. Released on the eve of World War II, the film was not a hit and cut down to a mere 86-minute running time. It would later be expanded another 20 minutes in a version that not even Renoir had ever seen. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you haven't seen Rules of the Game before, turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Otto, when was the first time you saw Rules of the Game, and what did you think? You know, I was trying to think about this this week. I saw both Grand Illusion and Rules of the Game either while I was in college or right after college. I tend to think I saw Grand Illusion in college, and then... For some reason, I was thinking about this today. I think I saw the rules of the game the first time at the Dryden Theater, which you know about, Mike. That's the theater at um, the George Eastman House here in Rochester, New York. And uh, I used to go there. You know, they'd show all these classic films. And that was the first time I ever saw it. And you were just telling people, you know, if you if you haven't seen this yet, go watch it and then come back. I would say go watch it two times at least. <laughs> And then come back. <laughs> Good advice, yes. Because it is not a film that is easy to follow if you just watch it one time. There's a lot of characters. There's a lot going on. And um, 
I liked it the first time I saw it, but I didn't entirely understand everything about it the first time I saw it. And Robert, how about yourself? I'm brand new to this film and Renoir in general. So when you asked me last year if I'd be interested in this episode, I jumped on it because I he's a director I've been meaning to get to. So I only uh, just saw it maybe a month ago for the first time. And I agree with Otto. I was like, you you, you just feel it. You know, I think so all of us are such film buffs. You know, like, this, this is not a one and done film. This is, you got to... You got to go back to it. And I had, I watched it again days ago and, of course, read a lot about it. And I pissed up on so much more the second time. And like Adra Bazin wrote in his book, you, you, could, you could probably watch this 20 times and, and keep seeing things. So my, my initial impression was more, at first I was sort of like, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying this, but he's, you know, he's this... Why is this the best film ever? Why, why, why is this considered one of the best films ever made? I was like, I, I'm like, yeah, it's funny. I'm like, this is good. I'm like, I must be missing something. But again, there's so much comes at you so hard that at the end of it, it was more of, of just a strong feeling I had. It just gives you it's so much energy and it's so many characters and it's just nonstop. And I was like, wow, uh, that is quite something. And the second time I had a similar experience, but I was able to see so much more. I went from liking it to really loving it. I just thought, wow, this is this is a masterpiece. This is such a great film. So I'll, I can easily watch it again tomorrow. I just loved it. So for me, this was also a first time watch. This was one of the films that they showed. I had a great, great, great intro to film professor back at uh, U of M, Hubert. Hugh Cohen, and he showed us just so many amazing things. But when you are a young working college student, occasionally you get a shift on a Thursday night when they're showing these films. So I missed things like Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, and I missed Rules of the Game. So all these years later, you know, what? I've been out of college for what, two, three years, something like that. <laughs> Can't even clue you guys. You can see the see the gray the hairs and the beard here. I, no, I'm going to say that's disheartening to have us laugh so quickly, animatedly, yes, yes. isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah. So quite a few years ago, I was supposed to see this and didn't. And a few years ago, we covered. Oh God, I'm blanking. We covered the Grand Illusion, and that's when I first really encountered Renoir, and it just fell in love and that movie just kind of tears the heart of you out of you and this movie does yeah. a lot of the same and now i'm just like why have i not seen more renoir i want to see mm. more of this guy's stuff you know last week we talked a little bit about his brother who had a role in children of paradise and this week we talk about him as a director about renoir as a director and an actor hell of an actor he does such he's a great. great job oh my gosh he's yeah. wonderful yeah, he's so good. He's also in some of his other movies because, like yourself, Mike, I'm new to Renoir, but just in the last you know month and a half, saw quite a few. And I was like, he's also in A Day in the Country. He's in the Human, the Human Beast. And I was like, wow, he's he's the passion that he brings and the intensity, and he's like that in person. If you watch his interviews, oh, yeah. so passionate and. He has such an everyman quality too. Like when you think Renoir, you think like, oh, the painter, this famous, you know, it has kind of a 
arts is has a very artsy feel to it. And you watch him, and I feel like I could just meet this guy in, in a local bar. Like he's so he's so great. Well, he was he was in fact beloved by everybody apparently who worked yes. with him. And one of the reasons they said I I don't know if I read it or if someone was saying it in an interview that when he was directing people, they'd have a scene and he'd whatever they did, he'd say, "Oh, that's fabulous! That's great! Why don't we just try it now like this? We'll get a nut." <laughs> and they said, you know, that he would never say to somebody, "Oh, that you don't you're not understanding what we're going for here, or, or that's terrible, or whatever." He would always compliment them and slowly get them to where he wanted them. And that they all, everybody loved him. You know, he, that phrase you always hear, he was an actor's director. But he was just, he was just a humanist, I think. I think that's what he has going for him more than anything. And Mike, you mentioned Grand Illusion. I just watched Grand Illusion again last night, which I've seen, you know, numerous times before. But just like this movie, as you say, it, it's amazing that you can go back to it over and over and over again and still get that same emotional yeah. response to it. It just, inc- I mean, really, and we're, I'm sure we'll talk about it later on, but all the things he did with, with technique and his, his shots and the style and everything, just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Because that's the thing is his character, Octave, we almost start with him. We start with this radio reporter, but we're introduced to him and to this character, Andre, so quickly. And Octave just draws your eye. And you're just so captivated <laughs> by this guy, this kind of larger-than-life, gregarious. He's got this kind of interesting haircut. He just seems so full of life and full of passion and full of friendship. He just wants to help out Andre so much. And he really becomes kind of the heart of the movie. Like this movie doesn't seem to have a protagonist. It just is more of an ensemble piece, but my eye just keeps going back to Octave through the entire thing. Yeah, me too. I mean, he was like the mediator with everybody. Like he's trying to help Andre and and he's trying to help Robert and, and, and settle all these problems between the, uh, the marriage with, uh, with Robert and uh and his wife christine and then you know you like him so much but then he also turns into a complete schmuck at the end you know it's like that's what i find it's like you know some of the characters are like oh okay well this this guy's more likable and then bah, wait a minute <laughs> you know he just turn he just could say something anti-semitic or racist and with this casual approach that that everyone has in the film and that's what i thought was so uh, incredible as well is how he managed to capture everyone so casually. I don't know how he did it. You know, it's just like, how did you make this and not it not be a mess with this many characters and this this much, you know, these farcical plots going on all at once? It's it's stunning. I mean, you can never this is what a great work of art could do. You can never nail down how he did it. It was just beautiful. And I don't want to go through every single plot point as we're going through here because it is so much. Well, first off, as you be here forever. Yeah. And there's so many characters <laughs> and they're just, it's so much about relationships and just who's in love with who and who can accept who and just this flip flopping of stuff. You mentioned farce and we have this image in our heads of French farce and 
you know, you always get that image of like the long corridor with all the doors and you've got one person coming out of one door going into another as somebody else sneaks from another door down the hallway and just all this kind of like swapping of, of partners and characters and just kind of like waiting to see who ends up with who, you know, we've seen that all the way back into like, you know, Shakespeare and before, and yeah. you know, this is based on a classic play. There's so many elements in here too, as far as like marriage of Figaro. I mean, this is really such a well-tread series of plot points, but he just brings such freshness to it. And one thing that I found absolutely fascinating is that <laughs> he, there's an emphasis put onto World War II by saying that this has nothing to do with World War II. By having this title card at the beginning to say, on the eve of World War II, not that that has anything to do with anything else. <laughs> right. And then, and it just puts the idea in your head and you're just like, well, now I have to look at this film in terms of World War II and where we're at in the world, where we're talking about, you know, the... Neville Chamberlain, you know, doing peace in our time and this whole idea of the the French being divided between the fascists and the libertarians and just all of these like different people in what they represent and this whole thing of the the nobility and just the futility of the nobility and you get to see, you know, the nobles having their dinner, the the servant class having their dinner kind of that crossover between the servants and the nobility and you, and you get a character like Marceau. I mean, so much of this could be like Marceau and Schumacher and just all of their interactions. I mean, you get just so many great story beats throughout this entire thing. And then, yeah, you have to recast it in your mind as far as now what's he saying about world war II, or how does that affect where we're at with this movie? You're talking about world war two. I mean, obviously they, they just, say it to you in that little snippet in the, like you said, in the title card. And then of course, it's so obvious because not a single person in the entire movie ever mentions anything. Forget about mentioning the war. They don't really mention anything really about the times, except for the fact that he's flown the ocean and, you know, radio and stuff like that. But, but what I find interesting is that that class, that nobility, on one hand, they're totally clueless yeah. to anything happening in the world other than their small little world, yeah, their little, you know, pathetic little world that they're in. But what I find most interesting about that, like you say, we see both the, the you know, the nobility upstairs and the servants down in the basement, but because the servant's life revolves around the nobility, they're, they don't know anything either. It's like they're not talking about what's happening in the outer world either because they too are cut off from the outer world, even though they don't have the position that the nobility have. And it is, it is fascinating that, you know, when you read about this as, as a war film, you know, if you don't know much about the times and you don't know much about Renoir, you know, someone would, would just watch it and say, how is this a war movie? But I, you know, I also thought it was the fact that the the absolute brutality, which with they're killing those animals and they think oh, nothing yeah. of it. They think nothing. I mean, they're t again, they're totally oblivious. And, you know, by that time, they all knew what was happening in terms of the war. The war, well, I mean, the war hadn't officially started when he when he was filming this. 
in terms of Poland being invaded, but they were, you know, they were literally what weeks away yeah. from that. Uh, and, and Hitler had already started marching on other countries. So they knew what was happening. It is really, really fascinating when you consider it in the context in which it was made. You mentioned the hunting scene. Like it's impossible for me anyways, it's impossible to look at that and not think of the Holocaust, um, of just people just being shot everywhere on the street, just simply for being who they are. And it's like, and it's a sport for these people. It's just like, they're, they're not doing it for survival because they need to eat or something. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, it's hunting time <laughs> and, and doing it for, for no re- reason other than to, because they, they find it fun and, and the sport of it. And what I also thought interesting about the servants, which I didn't anticipate was that they were also envious of people they work for i mean they all i almost felt like they wanted to 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 be in the same positions with that particularly cat the woman who works for christine at the beginning who's like rather would rather be with her than her husband and even when they're eating eating downstairs you know she's talking about her with so much awe and and envy and when i first saw it i was it was hard to sometimes tell who that who were the servants and who were the who were the rich people in charge because they're they're so alike in a lot of ways and like you said Otto, all so much in their own little worlds and only focused on either what they want or what's happening in their own lives so that was also something that i hadn't seen i think you think of the cliche like oh yeah the rich people are going to be jerks of the servants and the servants are going to just be quiet and then that's it and ignored. But no, he has everybody right mixed in there. And it's fascinating to see. It's really interesting. The person yeah. that needs those rabbits is Marceau. And then he's got Schumacher coming after him the entire time with a gun. I mean, the line at the end of the film, you know, I don't have any more bullets. I use them all against you. It's just like, holy shit. You know, I mean, the guy's running around with a gun in the. <laughs> You know, the colonaire, the colony, this this wonderful estate. And it's also interesting to me that, you know, we we start with Andre with this whole flight and he steps out of line by not saying to the radio reporter, like, oh, you know, I had a rough flight or what, you know, whatever kind of bullshit the radio reporter is looking for. Instead, he's just like, and I did this all for a woman. And he just goes... <laughs> And like, like I said, he steps out of line. He, he breaks the conventions. He breaks the rules. He breaks the rules. <laughs> and he breaks the rules of the game. And he pays yeah. the ultimate price by the end of it. Yeah, he was he was the one who told the truth the entire film. And what was so interesting about that opening scene was that Renoir shoots people being honest in the dark, right? And everybody else is lying in the broad daylight, you know, which I thought was such an interesting contrast. Or even at the end when uh, Oktav, Renoir Oktav was opening up about how he, feel, he feels that he's a failure to Christine. And again, it's it's in the dark when no one's around. It's like, yes. this can only happen when no one can hear you or, no, or, 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 or if no one has the power to just sit, turn the radio off. I don't want to hear this. And the lies are in the broad daylight. This is what we can all see is this superficial uh, existence and the cheating and the deception and the apathy. And, oh, God, it's it's really I can't take credit for noticing that. That was a featurette on the Criterion channel. One of the scholars said, yeah, the, the truth was always in the dark. I was like, that's so true. 
it's really, you know, what if, again, who would have thought of that? <laughs> Only Renoir, I guess. Yeah, that nice bookend, too, of the dark at the beginning and the dark at the end, which yeah. was great. Yeah. And he was, you know, he said, I don't know if he, they didn't make this clear if he actually said this while he was making it or right after it came out. I think this was something that he said many years later about the fact that it was a film about a society that was rotten to the core. Yeah. But I think he said that years later. But what I found interesting about that and about Renoir's take on this society that is rotten to the core, the film was made in 1939. Well, what film was big, important film in America in 1939? Gone with wow. the Wind. Another society that was rotten to the core, <laughs> the antebellum South. And yet the American take... I mean, of course, they were going by the book, but I mean, it's really, that's why I can't stand Gone with the Wind. It's really a sympathetic portrait of the South. I mean, you're made to feel empathy and you're supposed to feel sorry for those, for that society, even though we really know how terrible it was. Whereas in, you know, talk about being able to tell the truth more. I mean, Renoir is, is not holding anything back. And the amazing thing that everyone... I think maybe you guys already said it, or maybe I'm just getting so confused with all the stuff I've read. But, you know, when this film came out, the people on the right thought it was, you know, so offensive of Renoir to have made this film about the upper classes and to have kind of uh, castigated them the way he did. Whereas the people on the left thought he was too sympathetic (laughs) to the class (laughs) that he was covering. Can't please anyone. Right. There's also the thing of how dare you cast a Jewish man as Robert and how dare you cast this Austrian actress as the main female character, Christine. Well, the the actress, I guess, Nora Gregor, I think her name was, apparently that, like, she was essentially playing it true to her own circumstances at the time. I guess her husband and she had had to leave, I don't know if it was Austria or another country, because he was like a prince, and he had started like this anti-Hitler party early on, and all of his serfs beneath him kind of supported him. But then when Hitler came through, he had to flee. So he and his wife, she was like this princess who had been fleeing from Hitler's Germany. So she was lost at that point in time in her real life, and that supposedly is one of the reasons he cast her, because he had met her like a year or so before this. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. What, one thing that Bazin said, just what you, you guys were saying, I was right before the war. Bazin said something interesting about Renoir was that he, he seemed to be able to, not just with this film, but he, he seemed to be able to anticipate things that were coming very well. He just was so sensitive to human natures and different cultures and was such a humanist that he had a feeling of how things were going to go. And whereas some artists are incredible at depicting the past and getting an understanding of the past on film, let's say Lokino Visconti, or, or I'm not saying he couldn't do something like this because he's a master as well, but it, it is really something how, like I said, I watched some of these, that rabbit scene and you think, wow, I mean, that reminds me so much of, of the Holocaust, of, of things to come. So how, how, he, how he kind of anticipated this, I, I again... No one, no one knows, but he had an instinct that 
he followed. So I'm not surprised they were burning the movie theater down. <laughs> when, when this came out, it's like, my God, you know, that hurt him. Apparently hurt it badly, too. He just didn't even think he could make another film. And I, I don't blame him after that reaction. Well, I think he said after this film, he says he felt so bad that he was either going to stop making films or he was going to leave France. And of course, he left yeah. France. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For a while. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Gaston Modol plays a character with the last name of Schumacher, you know, very German name. And when it's all of them beating the bushes and getting the rabbits and the pheasants and everything going. Yeah. That is, it's very sinister. And the, the editing in that part, the editing in the hunt is amazing, especially when you oh, see yeah. like all of the close ups of the hunters and they all are raising their guns. And then you cut to Christine and her her servant is like, Oh, you, do you like hunting? She's like, Not really. It's all right. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, well, and like, I would say Robert does not seem that into it either. Well, like, Robert, yeah, he just yeah. wanted to get rid of them. It's like, Hey, let's do we only kill 250. Oh, come on, guys. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, uh, yeah. Robert said it before. I mean, it's really just, it's not like anyone except maybe the general is all that interested in actually hunting. It's just yeah, like yeah. entertainment for them. Yeah. And and like you're saying, Mike, with Christine, she she's quite literally, she's kind of bored by it, but she's just going along because that's what everybody's doing. Mm-hmm. And, and when you talk about, again, like, to go back to the whole, just the whole brutality of their attitudes about these things. If you remember, do you remember that one little piece where they were, it was almost like, I think maybe they were done with the hunt and they were starting to walk back. And I think it was the general who's talking about some guy from the year before who got so overly excited and he shot himself in the oh, thigh. Oh, yeah. Oh, that yes. older guy, yeah. Yeah, and he shot himself in the thigh and died 20 minutes later. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, laugh out it. I mean, yeah. it was incredible. He was the worst. And he he was also the guy that, he was also the last, had one of the last lines at the end after Robert, again, lies about what happens with, with uh, you know, poor uh, Andre that got murdered. He lies about it. And then, of course, what does the general say? That's a classy guy. Right? That's class. That's like, come on, buddy. Uh, <laughs> right. It was class because he was maintaining the rules. Exactly. You can't, exactly. you know, you can't lower yourself to that kind of, you know, I mean, the hypocrisy of Jeanne's character, it really knows no bounds. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the end where he lets go Chumache and <laughs> yeah, and yeah, Chumache. Yeah, and sorry, I keep saying Schumacher. And it, I was that saying, should be Schumacher, yes. When and I noticed Marseille said, Hello, senor, uh, senor, monsieur Schumacher. And I was like, Oh, that's how you say it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when he lets them both go and he says, I have to let you go too to Marceau, he's like, I can't fire Schumacher and then keep you here in this house with his wife. That would be immoral. Right. I mean, unbelievably <laughs> hypocritical. And yet the wife throws them both over for Christine. She's like, given my choice, I would rather stay with the mistress than be with either right. of you guys. Right. Well, that envy was, was so, was, you know, incredible. Again, he's able, you know, farce works so well, you could get away with that in a farce, right? Because it's so outrageous, the whole film. Like if this was, a, you know, more of a psychological film. 
no one could, I don't think anyone could buy into it, but he makes the whole thing so you could just accept it and and go with it because it's so it's so outrageous. I mean, that goes to how he used impressionism as well, like his father, of course, throughout his films, which to me is is really quite I can't, you know, again, I'm not too familiar with that French movement of impressionist impressionistic cinema, but as someone myself who's always kind of watching a film and thinking really interested in motives, psychological motives. Renoir was just, he, I mean, he had some films like that, but he was just more interested in capturing an impression, capturing, he's interested in the themes and not necessarily in a realistic depiction. And it makes it harder to watch, but much more fulfilling in a sense, because you have to, you know, I find myself watching this film and, you know, naturally talking about it on a podcast and ha- you have to just, go through every single character and say, okay, they did this, they did that, they did this. What is, what is, what is this adding up to here in terms of themes or emotions? And But if you say, why did they do this? You're going to go down a rap. You're going to be like those rapids <laughs> in this film. I mean, it's just, it's don't bother. I don't know if that was your guys' experience, but. Well, the first time I watched it, I was really kind of thrown off because I thought for sure, since we start with Andre, I thought, oh, this is going to be the Andre story. And we get him, like, he's so depressed. He crashes his car with Octave in it. He gets invited out to Le Colonnaire. Okay, this is going to be interesting. But he just kind of takes a back seat after a little while. He's always there as this kind of threat to Robert. But then Robert, he doesn't seem to give a shit either. Robert's got his lover that he's got on the side. And then eventually his lover and his wife end up becoming like buddies in one scene. That's like one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when they have their discussion. And Robert is, he's more concerned about his old time toys than he is about (laughs) anything else. And for me, that's (laughs) like, I'm stuck in the past. I'm more concerned about things that I can control than about the uncontrollable world outside. So when his machine, his big machine, like they have this amazing party sequence that really takes up like the second half of the film when he unveils this machine that he's restored and it's playing all this music and all this. And then at one point, I don't know if it gets shot or what happens with this machine, but it just starts making this horrible noise. And you get that interesting tableau of so many of the people at the party with their hands up. I think it's because of Schumacher with his gun and they're like almost afraid of him. But at the same time, you have them with their hands up and you have this machine making this horrible racket. And I'm just like, this is the, the most interesting part of this for me. It's just seeing this almost like, it feels like a little dip of surrealism right in the middle of this whole action scene that they have. I saw that as being absolute chaos. Yeah. Yeah. In, in what's supposed to be this very well-ordered society. <laughs> yes. That they, <laughs> that they control, you know? You know, the thing about Jurey, the, the the pilot, I don't know how you guys felt, but I really think he's a weak character. I mean, yes. a weak person. The the character itself is a weak person. I mean, like we said at the beginning, he sets this great record. He ha- becomes a national hero, and he his first reaction is to have this little temper tantrum on the radio. And, and then later he almost kills his best friend, you know, by just, you know, driving the car into the ditch. I mean, he's a baby. (laughs) He he really is childish. Of course, 
I mean, technically speaking, when we get to La Colonia, they're all childish in their own ways. But I, I do think like, you know, you're just saying we expected it to be about him and then he kind of disappears. I think he's just kind of a, a weak character. He's not, not as interesting as some of the other characters are. In part, I, I agree. I think, I think for him, impossible for him to live in the world because he's so honest and impulsive and instinctive and follows his heart. And if you do that in life, you'll, you cannot survive. So it's a weakness in that sense. But in another way, it's a strength. It's such a strength, I feel, because, you know, how often are people up front and follow their instincts and follow their heart? And so he did, he does illustrate way of living that is pure, but that in, I mean, even in society today, you can't survive. And of course, within these rules of the game, you certainly couldn't couldn't survive or else you're going to get killed, which we, we see. But I, I felt that Renoir was saying that, you know, he, he's probably the best person in the story. And of course he gets, he's the one who goes down. Okay. That's wow. how I saw it anyways. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. I, yeah, that's interesting. Cause I didn't, that's, I didn't see him as necessarily honest and pure as I did see him naive. But maybe that says more about me than him. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the beauty of it. It's subjective, right? I mean, he doesn't he doesn't just connect the dots for you. And and what you say, I think, is totally valid. I mean, someone could say that and say, you know, this is a naive person. But I mean, yeah, that does, there is truth to that because he, you know, like it is naive to think that you could you could do this and and go on the radio and. And be so honest. I mean, yeah, people are going to be like, "What the hell are you like?" Like, all top Octave is right in a sense. Like, you just won. You just you just broke this record. You're going on the radio. I wish I could say it in French. It sounded so good. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, "What are you doing, man?" And and he's right. I at the same time, I I admire his uh, his instinctiveness and and his need to you know, like he has a chance to run away from with Christine later, and she's like, "Let's go," and he's like, "No, no, we got to tell your husband first. Right. See, those are those are his rules, right? He's like, those there are rules, but his rules are honesty and their rules are fuck everybody else. <laughs> let's go, let's get out of here. I don't know. That's all I that's that's just my that was just my feeling about it. But I forgot that Andre was even around until there was a one one part where you don't see him for a little while. And then again during that party scene, it's I believe it's during the part where it's kind of like that spook show where the the guys are there in the skeleton costume. Oh yeah, yeah. And you're going around the room, and Renoir is lighting people with it. Almost looks like spotlights or like flashlights. And yeah, just the way that we're panning across, and we get these lights going and everything. And we get to see, like, oh, here's Marcel and the woman making out, and then, oh, here's Schumacher, so <laughs> stop that. And then at one point, it's like, oh, and here's Andre standing all by himself in front of this picture. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, he's also kind of, like, on the hunt, just like Schumacher is on the hunt for Marceau. We've got Marcel, we've got, you know, Andre over there, like, looking for Christine and where she at, and he wants to go for her. And then that great irony of here's octave helping out his buddy throughout the entire thing and he's slowly falling in love with christine through this whole thing it's almost like you know you got that friend who you're just like oh there's this girl and i love her and she's so great and you talk her all up and then your friend eventually is like oh yeah she is pretty great and then he's the one that goes out with her and just like <laughs> what the fuck 
Like, that's kind of Octave until Octave, near the end of the film, like, looks at himself in a mirror and he has that that moment of taking notice of himself and just like, I'm no good for Christine. I'm old and I'm fat and I'm just this kind of schlubby guy. Let me give my coat to my good friend Andre and send him out to this greenhouse where she's waiting for me. But really, he can tell her that he's the one and let's do that. And basically sending him out, unbeknownst to Dave, sending him out to his death. I love that. The irony. Oh, it's so good. Well, wait a minute, Mike. Do you think that it, did you get the impression that he fell in love with her during the course of this film? Because I felt like he always loved her and he was, he was trying, too, yeah. yeah, he was trying to deny himself. Speaking yeah. from experience 35 years ago, I was always, I had a lot of girls who were friends, you know, but no one was. I wasn't dating anyone. I was the friend. And a lot of those girls, I I only wanted to be their friend, but not all of them. <laughs> you know? And then say that, they say that in the film. Lizette says it. Christine says to Lizette at one point, she's asking her about her lovers. And, and then she says, and how about friendship? And Lizette says, with a man? Right. <laughs> she says, when paintings have wings, she says. Yeah. Yeah, so you know, I got the impression that he that he always loved her, and then of course the beauty, like you say, the beauty of that irony at the end, because of course Christine has already been given Lizette's tape by Lizette, mm-hmm. so 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 she looks to Schumacher and Marceau when they're looking at them in the greenhouse. It looks like that's like that's Lizette, yeah. yeah. And then Octave is going to go and meet her, and then. Octave gives Giraud his coat. And what I thought was kind of funny, and it well, not funny, but adds to the tragedy of it, is these people have all have all been so selfish throughout the film. Everyone is is self-centered. They're only thinking about themselves. And and Octave makes this great sacrifice, really. He's gonna give up this woman he loves because he knows he's really not best for her he can't give her what she wants and what she needs and all that so he makes this sacrifice and gives his code and gives his woman to his best friend and then of course the irony is that the best friend goes out and gets killed because of it but he didn't know that i mean it was a selfless gesture on his part and i thought it was kind of interesting that the one selfless gesture (laughs) in the film leads to tragedy Andre, after the car accident, said to Octave, well, you're in love with her, too. And he goes, me? He's like, no, no, no. She's just like a sister to me. So, which, again, you can either believe that or 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 not. But I think Andre was on to something that, yeah, he, this guy's already in love with this woman. It's interesting because at the end, what you, both, what you both say is totally valid. And again, it's it's subjective so to and you know because he doesn't give you the motives you have to just you know go to it and and make your own interpretation but i i saw i saw the fact that, that he gave the coat to andres because he got caught he's like he saw it his way out and andres like well, what's going on it's kind of like oh yeah here's the coat take it to her because i thought well what was he gonna say he was gonna have to say well i guess he could have lied and said oh i'm just going home I don't know. It's a tough one, isn't it? 
but I thought he was lying. I thought he was kind of like, oh shit, I got caught. Okay, well, here's, you know, she's waiting for you, buddy. <laughs> I, I would go along with that, except for what Mike said. And that is, there is that moment where Lizette is telling Octave why he's no good for, for Christine. And as Mike said, there is that moment where Octave looks in the mirror and you yeah. just see it over his face that he realizes, oh, right. Yeah. Gonna realize I'm not right for her. I'm not, I'm not the answer. Yeah. Because remember, film, there's so many details, right? Like just a few lines. Can you miss it? That you get out. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you so I remember that part, but I can't remember what she said. So now, but now that you both you mentioned it, yeah. It's good. Not point. only that, but if you remember when Jure first comes in and they're all greeting him in the big hall there, and then that, that I think it was that older lady says to Christine's niece, Something about that generation. She's like, he's quite a, quite a prospect or something. Oh, yeah. And the young girl says, he doesn't even notice me. And she says, I'm sure he must be, what did she say? Like, I'm sure he must be well-connected or have a lot of good prospects for a, in other words, I'm sure he, he could support a wife to the way she might want to be supported, <laughs> you know? So she's also saying at the beginning that, that he is someone who's, even though he's not part of the nobility, he's got money and he's got prospects. Whereas Octave has already just told us a few minutes before that, that he's a failure. Right, right, right. That's yeah, that's a good right. point. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's a strong possibility. Yeah. I love, I love that, that older, that woman. And I thought it was funny. Like here's this, this young, the niece of Christine is like, oh, she, you know, he wouldn't be interested in me. He's like, yeah, I'll throw a party for you. Everything's about a party. Everything's <laughs> right. like, what is that going to do? Just because, just because there's this big soiree. <laughs> she was a character with the salt later with the, eating the sea salt and not salt. I love that. Right. That was yeah. brilliant. And only after it's cooked. Yeah. <laughs> and that chef is just like, yeah, right. Like, I'm going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he was great. Yeah. The chef yeah. says something. He's something like, I'll, I'll follow diets, but not obsession. Yeah, right. that's right. <laughs> he, he was an example of a character who was like, oh, this is, this is more of a, of a, you know, like, let's say likable kind of guy. And then like within minutes, he turns around and says, speaking of the Jewish people, and then he, I'm just like, oh God, you know, right. he said that they eat like pigs. I'm like, man, like you just said something against these rich friggin' bourgeois. And now you just ruined it. Ruined it for me. <laughs> By the way, something I just noticed today when I watched it again, and it's only because I just watched um, Grand Illusion yesterday. But when the servants are around the table talking, and they and they say they talk about uh, Robert, you know, Shanae's Jewish ancestry or something, and they say his grandfather was a Rosenthal or something, mm, right? Mm. That's his, that is Marcel Dahlio's name, character's name in Grand Illusion. Oh, funny. So, oh, and that was oh, like a year okay. or two before. So I can't imagine that was an accident. <laughs> no, I don't imagine. Yeah. Kind of going back to your point, as far as was Octave in love with her before or not, what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me, especially when I think about when he comes in and he lays on her bed. And she gets on the bed with him and he just looks so happy. So like those two in bed right near towards the beginning of the film, you know, it's picked up on that 
with a rewatch today and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. There's, there is this scene because I, I didn't even really realize that there was that love the first time I watched this until, you know, we get way deep in the film. So this time around, the second time around watching it, or actually it might've been the third time to pick up on, you know, more of those intentions earlier. And I think if I watched it a fourth, fifth or sixth time that I would really see it a lot more clearly. Yeah. 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 That, that, that was a great scene because, you know, he's saying, well, you can't just, you know, throw your arms around people like a little girl. And then sure enough, she, she <laughs> you know, he's, he's telling her that and then she does it to him and he's like, yeah, this is great. Yeah. Lie on the bed. <laughs> You guys were obviously Romeos. You didn't have enough women lead you on. Oh. That that <laughs> that whole thing I just described about talking about the girl and the other guy going out. That raising my hand right here. I love all those little comments you guys were talking about, like the general and just you know, there's all these like it's almost like a Greek chorus around with all these little comments going on about the main action because you've got oh I love that uh, at least like six or eight main characters but then you have probably a dozen or, or more of these other nobles and servants just kind of hanging around and they are all playing a part and different parts they are playing a part which i really appreciate like even like there's that kind of like larger lady who is playing piano at one point and she interacts with some of the characters i mean nobody is wasted in this film everybody's has something to add to it and with a cast this size it's really remarkable and then to see the way that Renoir handles the cast you, know, you talked a little bit about the way that he actually shot this thing these long beautiful hallways that oh, are in yeah. the, the, the colonnade and to see the way that people are timed and you know like these people pass out of sight as these people enter these people are way down the hall as these people are closer Everything's in focus. Everything looks gorgeous, but just to see, you know, the relationship happening in the in the background versus what's happening in the foreground. I mean, again, on that Criterion disc, there's a really nice scene breakdown where it's two characters walking, Robert and I can't remember if it's Andre or who it is, but they're having a conversation. And in the back, you see Octave and Christine, and it's like, oh, okay, so it's like. Not only do you have to pay attention to all the dialogue going on, but you also really have to pay attention to everything that's happening inside of each and every single shot, be it foreground or background. We've got a lot of things happening in here. Well, which is what, which is why he was he wanted to use deep focus because he wanted to see the characters move and interact, and he didn't want to just break it up with a lot of editing. And and I know Bazine was saying in his book what you just said like what's in the foreground like in most movies you you pay attention to what's in the foreground and what's in the background what we you know people call background performers is just to, to create the atmosphere and and he he doesn't he's not just creating atmosphere there's a whole story going on in the back of the shot and then at the same time because he's got these things these stories crisscrossing and happening all at once like the scene you mentioned earlier Mike where during the performance and everyone's in darkness and it goes to Christine with that guy she takes off to and she's drinking too much. And the guy's like, Oh yeah, he's clearly trying to pick her up. He's like, yeah, no, no, this is <laughs> And then it goes to, it goes to the other two make it out and Schumacher after them. And then, oh, and then the camera pans over to Andre and he's noticing Christine. And as Bazine said, it's like, 
you know, what film can you think of where you're seeing one thing, but you know that something else is happening outside of the frame? You know, like when you're watching most movies, you're what's in the frame is what's happening. And that's what you're, right. but here he goes, he's panning and going casually, feels casual, but I'm nothing casual about the way they did it. He's got to be, as you said, timed so well. You're, you get invested in one story and that, oh, I was going here and it's these bits and pieces. And I can't think of another film. I mean, there's plenty of films with tons of stories that connect, like Paul Thomas Anderson does that, right? But they're all separate. Here, they're all happening at the same time. And you're, again, you're thinking, what is going on back there? You're interested in everything. That was my experience. The thing that I kept thinking about watching this film was just how far ahead he is of Hollywood at the same time. Because think about it, Wells and Citizen Kane is... They use a lot of the deep focus, but that's two years after this film. And even even Wells doesn't use it to the extent that Renoir uses it here. And, and Renoir uses it in, in Grand Illusion as well. He, he used it in, I've watched La Chienne and Baudou Save from Drowning. Oh, yeah. And he uses it in all of them. And he uses the, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really incredible. And the natural sound, which Hollywood definitely was not doing that at this point in time so it's his technique just seems to me just seems to be so far ahead of the rest of the game and and it's obviously probably not a surprise that for many 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 years after this wells always referred to renoir as the greatest filmmaker of all time oh yeah um yeah i mean that orson wells always said that about about renoir so um, you know, he, what he's doing is just incredible. And like that scene, literally where you're talking about near the beginning where Octavius goes on to Christine's bed and everything, even in those scenes, they're, they're moving around in the hallway in the bedroom and you're, you're seeing all this other stuff going on in the background and it goes back that to mirror, said who yeah. right, that mirror up so you can see it even more. Yeah. And it goes back to what we said at the very beginning. And that is a. You have to watch this film more than once. That's number one. But when sure. people like us, who, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm assuming none of us speak French. So if you don't speak French, we're reading the subtitle. <laughs> we're trying to watch everything that's going on. Well, and there's also plays on words going on. There's the, the line that comes up at least twice where it's like, oh, you know, au revoir, or should I say adieu? And I'm just like, okay, I, I'm not catching all the subtlety of that. I was really a little tiffed at the beginning when I was watching it. And you've got Andre and Octave having a discussion in the foreground, and you have the radio announcer talking in the background, and she's not subtitled, they are. And I'm just like, I wonder what she's saying. I really wish, because, you know, you talk about like all the dialogue and all the movement and all this. I'm just like, okay, well, this feels like a Robert Altman film all the way back in 1939. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, yeah. well, gosh, it took him until 2001 for Gosford Park, which was kind of traveling some of the same ground here. That's like, the film I was thinking with this. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking of that. And then I was also thinking of Bergman's Smiles of a Summer Night. Oh, like, yes. Yeah. And also there's a couple like Czech films like the straw hat and things where it's just like, okay, this is based on a play. I can kind of feel like it's based on a play, but with Renoir, yeah, there's a couple plays that inform this, 
but this does not feel like a play. You know, the way that he shoots this, the way that we have the outdoor versus the indoor, and we have the hunting scene, like there's two hunting scenes. You know, the, we have these big set pieces of like the hunting, the party. None of this could take place on a stage. Unless the stage was massive, but like the like again, those hallway scenes, the halls go down forever. And it's not like he's shooting this with like, you know, little people nope. at the end to give you like nope. the illusion of depth. This is the real depth. Like you see, like that is Renoir all the way back there, and that is, you know, Marcel all the way up front, you know. It's like this is this is wild. It's pretty it's pretty underrated, I think, I feel, just in terms of filmmaking in general, where my impression is that more of the the stylistic, I mean, this is style, this of course is a style, of course, but more of the, you know, people have a, an aesthetic that really pumps, get more attention, like, like a Wells or a Hitchcock. And I really love those guys, but it seems as if the people who, who, you know, move the camera more or maybe are, are happy to, to keep it static for a long period and have the characters interact. People just write those off as, oh, well, you're just filming a play. But it's like, you're filming it like a play. But it's like, do you know how hard it is to time all of this, <laughs> to light it as well as it is, the blocking? It's It's got to be perfect. I was once doing short film about a decade ago. And I and I had and I said to the DOP, I said, wouldn't it be interesting because it all took place in this cafe? I said, wouldn't it be interesting if we did it almost like one take or or just coming and going and or or just as few takes as possible? And he was like, he just like looked at me like I was crazy. I'm like, why well, now that I'm now yeah, I didn't know I didn't know Renoir's films then, but now I'd be well, Renoir did it. Come on, man. Right. You can do this. <laughs> And there's nothing in this film that is just like, oh, wow, like drawing attention to itself. There's nothing like, okay, everybody, I'm about to do a one and let's do this. And like, you'll really notice that I am about to do this or, hey, check this out. Look at this mirror shot that I'm doing. There's nothing where he's just like so ostentatious, like drawing attention to himself saying, look at the way that I'm doing this. It just all feels so natural. And it wasn't Seamless. even until... Like the second time that I watched it, where it's just like, oh, oh, wow, look at that shot. I didn't even catch that the first time. There's nothing where it was just like waving a flag in my face, going like, pay attention to this shot. It's just, he it just puts it out there. And I was really glad too with the Criterion disc because there's the whole like print the legend kind of thing around this film. And you read all these stories about, oh, yeah, there are riots in the theater and Mar cut it down to, you know, what 90 some minutes and then the yeah 96 minutes i think it was and then some people say oh yeah he was in the theater and then writing down all the parts where it film wasn't working where people were catcalling and all this stuff and cut it down another 10 minutes and the criterion disc there's a really nice extra on there where it was a french scholar and he's talking about like ah well it was actually like his editor it wasn't him i think renoir even says that in the intro where he says, I sent my editor to do that, not him himself. I think he was already off shooting something else. And he's just like, yeah, you know, we're going to cut this down. And just like, it wasn't as awful as the stories make it out to be. It was still pretty bad. Like Renoir was pretty disappointed by this film and it did end his whole ambition of being, becoming an independent producer. But I like that there was this other voice on the disc saying, well, actually it wasn't as terrible as all of these stories. This wasn't this kind of like film OD that 
just, you know, everybody hated at first, you know, there were riots. Well, there were, there were people lighting newspapers on fire and people catcalling the screen and all this kind of stuff, but it wasn't like, you know, national scandal. And I think once the war broke out, people just kind of forgot about the movie a little bit, or at least the general public, but it was beloved by film scholars. Definitely. I believe the Germans occupied Paris like six months after this film came out, something like six, six or seven months. That was it. And it was all over. And Renoir, of course, he kind of lent his voice to those myths because he's the one who I saw being interviewed saying that he he was there and he saw a man light a newspaper, you know, and all that stuff. So, um, and the other thing I read was that the cuts, I think there were two, like you're saying, I think there were two separate cuts. The version that we now have is the longest version that they put together after they, after they re you know, we gained some negatives after the war. From what I understand, this version that we see now is longer than the original version. Right. And noir like showed like that was 96. It got cut down to 86 and now it's more like 106. Correct. Right. Yeah. And, and apparently a lot of what was, whether this is what he cut out to begin with or after they, they showed it, but he cut out a lot of his screen time. Wild. Yeah, apparently he cut out the scene, that whole scene with he and Christine in the greenhouse and, you know, show, you know, uh, announcing their love for one another. He cut all of that out and he cut out his scene, the bridge, where he talks about what a failure he is. So, you know, I, I read one guy say maybe, you know, at that point he was so embarrassed he didn't want to be identified with <laughs> the or what? Because that he said that, that that was up to that time, that was his biggest failure. Uh, and he hadn't, you know, the early stuff he did had not been huge profit-making films, silent films and the first first one or two sound films. I think La Chienne was the first one that kind of started getting the critics on his side. Uh, he wasn't taken seriously for a long time. Like, right. he was around for a while before anyone took him seriously right right so i think it is interesting that that's what he cut out it's his his and like i'm like i think we all agree i love him in this oh yeah i mean i absolutely love him and i also love the fact that when they're doing that play the masquerade whatever you want to call it that he dresses (laughs) as a bear yes so good because i know this is going to sound ridiculous but because when i look at him he looks like a cuddly teddy bear to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, just, and he's got that, that, you know, that aspect to his personality. Like you say that you just you can't help but like him. Maybe he was thinking, oh my God, people hate this so much. We've got to make some cuts. The first one's going to go has got to be me. Cause everyone, right. maybe if it was another actor, they'd be, maybe you didn't want to hurt anyone. Maybe as well hurt myself. He did a similar thing on one of his American films. I don't know if you guys saw it. A woman on the beach, which is okay. It's 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 not great, but it was okay, and it had a bad reaction. And he was like, and he was like, okay. He started to cut it up. So maybe maybe this experience psychologically affected him to the point where if he was getting a lot of flack, he was okay. I gotta, I'm gonna have to just cut some stuff because he did a similar thing. 
with the woman on the beach. But women on the woman on the beach was much later, right? Yeah, exactly. But what I mean is, I wonder if that this experience affected him so badly that to get such a bad reaction, his first instinct was like, "Go cut. We got to make some cuts." Because apparently, he did the same thing on the woman on the beach. Right. Wow. But when did? As I think, when I saw him being interviewed, he said that was it fifty eight or fifty nine when he he kind of first realized that this film was getting a reappraisal by the younger critics yeah. and stuff. And, and I, I don't know, I want to, I'm going to see woman on the beach before the end of this month. Cause it's leaving criterion at the yeah. end. It's yeah, on the channel. <laughs> so I want to watch it, but I thought that was made like in the late fifties or early sixties. So that's it. Uh, that was 47. Yeah. Oh, okay. Then that makes much more sense. I, yeah. More sense then. Okay. Yeah. But I, again, I'm just speculating just based on what, what we're saying. I'm like, I wonder if that, you know, no, that makes sense. Of, sense. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It makes sense if it was that, if it was still that soon after the yes. debacle of, of yes. this. So, yeah. Yeah. His whole thing of, of playing up class stuff is amazing between, mm-hmm. you mentioned Budos, right? Same from Drowning. He did Diary of a Chambermaid, the uh, Mirbeau film. I'm sorry, Mirbeau the play, I think it was, right? You know, he, he always seemed to have that, that ear for, looking at the class challenges and, and really kind of skewering the, the upper class, which was great. Well, man, like Boonwell is like, he's, he, that's his, for me anyways, it was that connection with Boonwell, that similar sensibility. Class is a huge part of Grand Illusion again, oh, too. Uh, yeah. You know, with, oh yeah, who gets what rooms and all that. Yeah. Yeah. And in that you have the French officer who is essentially says to von stroheim because von stroheim is is treating the french officer with with such gentlemanly you know yeah. uh, treatment and and the french guy says to him well our our class or our society that we grew up in is ending it's coming to an end and he understands that von stroheim May or may not, but von Sorheim certainly doesn't want to accept that, and he's certainly not willing to acknowledge it the way the French guy is. But oh God, there's a lot about class in Grand Illusion, which I had forgotten about. But yeah, yeah, and, and he and he explores the anti-Semitism in that as well, because von Stroheim also was like, well, I don't want to hang out with those guys, also because they were Jewish, right? Yeah, you know, he's like, yeah, the one was Jewish, yeah, yeah, one of them. I mean, it, it was subtle, and I was more about the class, but I'm like, okay, I, I could see when he was getting at <laughs> Renoir with, right. uh, in, you know, in terms of the uh, race differences and in that film as well. Yeah, it's amazing because this could have just been such a, you know, like I was saying before, French farce, you know, who's sleeping with who, who's going to be revealed here and there. It's like... I think it was very exciting. Michael J. Fox movie from years and years ago. The Secret of My Success. Secret of My Success, right. That yeah. was that whole like bedroom doors opening and closing yeah. type of a movie. And it's just like, okay, yeah, we Yeah, they're all plot. Yeah, th- those are fine. I mean, comedy of manners, those are, are nice, you know, like which we don't see comedy of manners too much, you know, like when people talk about like screwball versus comedy of manners, people kind of tend to forget comedy of manners, but you know, they, they all have their place, but he just takes this material and elevates it to such a higher level. 
And then, yeah, you have that seed that I talked about way back when we first started talking. You have that seed of World War II where you're just like, oh, now I can read this in a whole different way. Now I see Robert playing with these toys, trying to be stuck in the past, not wanting to look at the future. You see innocence being shot down. You see, you know, just it's like, oh, okay. So, like, we have so many different levels with this movie that it's just like, wow, what? I need more Renoir in my life. <laughs> that's how I've been. That's how I've been feeling. And you know, just the other films we mentioned: La Chienne, Boudou, Save from Drowning, and Illusion. I was like, how am I just seeing these now? I'm like, they're they're phenomenal. And again, using impressionism, which is I can't think of anyone who's who does anything like that now, or even how many people even did that after him. One of the films that I was thinking about when I was thinking about this film was My Man Godfrey. Oh, yeah. Because, again, it's a class comedy, but it's so interesting the way American films at that time were addressing things. And this French cinema is addressing stuff. I mean, I think some of that has to go back to our puritanical background. <laughs> You know, where we can't talk, we can't have the bedroom doors opening and closing right. at that point. Certainly not after the code came into being. Oh, Maybe yeah. some of the pre-code films, but not afterwards. And right. It's just amazing their take on it compared to how far behind we were <laughs> at that yeah. same time. The conversation between Robert's lover and Christine, this would be a blowout in any other film or like, oh, let's get them like together. We'll team up and we'll do something horrible to Robert. We'll like cook his dog or something <laughs> like that. Like but three in the attic. Yeah. You guys saw that one. <laughs> but it's put him in a, put him in an attic and sleep them. Have sex with them. He's dead. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so nonchalant. It's so European. It's just this attitude yeah. of, Oh well, you know he fancies her, or she fancies him. Okay, we'll have we'll have some sex, and then we'll forget about it, or we'll just kind of carry on, maybe in private, maybe not so private. And yeah, I really did appreciate that about this movie, where it's just so nonchalant about the way that these relationships were being handled. I love that scene also because yeah, you're you're right, Mike. It was like you're expecting a blowout. She just caught them kissing on the hunt, and. You think, oh, okay, now she's talking to Genevieve. And I'm like, okay, she's gonna she's gonna blow up on her. And then it's like she's like, Yeah, I know what's going on. And then they start joking about the fact that that he uh that he smokes on the bed and he gets ash on the bed and they're like, Yeah, he's such a pig. And then she's like, This is my opportunity to go and do my own sleeping around. <laughs> right. She's glad that now he won't be paying attention to her. If Genevieve is at the party, she's like, don't leave. What are you going to leave for? Now I could go. And I just thought, wow, he just turned that cliche right on, on its head. And he made it about something more of a selfish instinct. And my impression of Christine up until that point was that she's an immigrant. She's an outsider. And she is talking about wanting friendship with men more than relationships and wanting children. She even says to her servant, don't you want kids? And I'm like, you seem to be a little more like Andre. And then all of a sudden, she's like, Andre, not nah, he's too sincere. People who are insincere are boring. <laughs> so for her, it was that conflict between the need for consumerism versus some kind of actual genuine 
truth and interaction because she's she goes back and forth and you don't know whether uh, because people say that about her robert says to andre well she's not gonna go with you because she she you don't have enough money for her you know you she needs a lot of stuff like is that true or or should we take his word for it is that out of jealousy because he wants to stop the affair i don't know i think i mean i think he was onto something why else would she have married him right (laughs) so she's a fascinating character as well Apparently, there was an early draft of the screenplay that had her father, who they referred to as being this great conductor. Well, Robert was this, you know, again, he has so much, he had so much money that was left to him. He's never worked a day in his life. And to justify all his money, he became like a patron of the art. So he brought her father to Paris to be a conductor. And she, worked with her father she was like an assistant to her father she almost had like her own career and because of that she basically marries robert out of gratitude for what he did for her father after the father dies yeah and they kind of lose that because they didn't they didn't keep that in the in the script i thought the scene that she has with genevieve i thought she thought that Christine was basically just trying to cover herself because she was embarrassed that she didn't know that this was going on. So now she's trying to say, oh, well, of course I knew. And, oh, this is, this is fine. Now I can do what I want to do. But that's, yeah, that's what I kind of see because I think, um, well, Genevieve mentioned it earlier to Robert. The fact is that they keep making a point that she's an, she's not a French, she's not French. Oh, yeah. So forget about yeah. being European. She's not French. Right. So she doesn't understand the way these people hop in and out of bed with one another. Yeah. So she is genuinely hurt when she discovers that. And I took that scene with Genevieve is where she's just trying to cover herself. So she, she's not, so she doesn't lose faith basically. Um, but she was really hurt and, and she had no idea that it was going on obviously so well, well you know what was interesting see i see that's i yeah that that's a that's and certainly valid interpretation but when i was i rewatched some of her early scenes and i thought she must have been she probably didn't know it was genevieve but i think she knew that he was cheating because she says you always know when he's lying and he always lies. So she is in, in tune with his lying. And then she asks her servant off the top, how many lovers do you have? So she's kind of trying to put this all together with this these people. Like, why are they all so casual with lovers? And so I think she knows that something's going on. But she just it didn't know yet. And it, yeah, I, I totally agree she was hurt. Because I think the vulnerability of, like, of them being like, I love you, Andre. No, I love you. Fucked up, and she's like jumping around because I think she would have just she had a need to fall for to escape the pain being hurt certainly. But I I I felt that she was really on to him uh, right from the beginning because like she said, but you're right, you have a point, Otto. Maybe it's a cover up. Maybe she's just saying, oh, he's a bad liar. Maybe she's just lying. You know, they don't lie, right? So- I thought she was trying to cover up because she says at the very beginning, which I thought was very fun. It was a very funny moment. It was right near the beginning of the film where she, um, she is relieved 
because Robert has been listening to the radio. So he heard Andre on the radio and he says, oh, you know, you, you could have at least gone out there. He misinterpreted the little affection that you showed. Right. Right. She's so grateful and relieved that he, you know, he's not jealous and he realizes that she didn't, you know, she wasn't in love with this guy. And then he said, what does he say? Something like, she says something like, oh no, I trust you. You would never lie to me. She says that to Robert. And then immediately he says, oh yeah, hold on one second. And he runs back into his room to call his mistress and say, <laughs> To set up the date so he can break off the... Break it off, yeah. 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 So, yeah. I don't think that she knew. What I think is, what I do think comes across in those early scenes is that she's not in love with her husband either. No. I, so I don't think that she necessarily knows he's cheating. I just think she's not in love with him. She married him out of a sense of duty and gratitude for what he did for her father. But I don't, I don't think she's ever in love with him. No, I don't. Th I didn't think she was in love with anybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think Renoir, Renoir himself described her as being like a like a just a pure romantic. So it's like those those feelings of romance maybe could be interpreted like just like the feeling of like a rush, like a drug. Like she's like you know she says to Andre, "Let's run away right now," and he's like, "No, no, we got to talk to your husband. He's more practical." And so she goes to then because you know again he's genuine, right? And and she's feeling let down. And, oh, this is boring. And then, you know, and then off to him. Okay, well, then I'll run off with him because he is so vulnerable in that moment towards her. And and she she fall, falls for that. But it really is this odd conflict with her, I felt. with Because she also starts to talk about that people lie so much. And, and Octave's like, oh, everybody lies nowadays. So, again, like Renoir uh, Bazin says, like, it's it's so... It's almost impossible to figure out the motives. It's just like, what did they do? They they did this. They did this. They just just go with what they do. And then, what does all that say? What does that say about them? Whether they're lying or cheating or running off with a lover or just kind of have to take what they do and 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 go with it. But it it is true. I think it's hard to tell where she's lying and where she isn't. Which is again interesting to look at her character. You get those moments of like when Andre shows up at La Colonaire and everyone kisses him and welcomes him. And then she does the kissing. She's like, oh, well, now it's okay for me to do this. And I was thinking, so kind of a third interpretation of that scene we're talking about, when she starts talking about how he smokes in bed and then the other woman agrees with her, I, I wanted her to. And at first, I was thinking she was going to turn around and be like, ah, so you have slept with my husband. <laughs> like a test. Yes, yes, exactly. Totally a test. It was trapped yeah. in her. Yes. I could see that. Well, again, and then he says, he says to Octop, no, no, nothing happened between us, which, which again, we never find out whether anything did or not. And I love, again, all the people invited to the chateau, the, all the little gossiping behind when, you know, when, Behind, well, not behind closed doors, but just to each other. And then one one of the women there say, "Someone, I think it was the guy who was was openly not openly gay, but obviously gay character." Oh yeah, which was which is another interesting thing to talk about. He's like, "Hey, did anything happen?" And the other woman's like, "Oh yeah, for sure, <laughs> of course it did, right? Yeah, exactly." <laughs> and I was like, I feel like okay, we we get that this guy's a, a perhaps as Otto said naive or or 
goes with his heart, but I was like, you know, I was like, I feel like something must have happened for him to have gone to these lengths. <laughs> she just brushes it off, right? So no, it's not, you know, it just had a, just gave him a little hug and he took it too far. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. And I know. I love, so you mentioned Ren Wire's line there about everybody lies. I thought that, I thought that because he lists, he lists like, what I think he said politicians, radio, cosmetics company or something like goes down this whole list of everybody lies nowadays. And I'm thinking, oh my God, totally now it gets current. Now we totally need the key word. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Only current. I mean, then it's, it's uh, what, 90 years old or 80 years old, whenever it is. And it's still, it's still true. Well, it, it almost feels like this is more relevant now. I think everybody has the side to them <laughs> to a, a, a greater or lesser degree, but certainly polit- like on a, on a political level, just saying, oh my God, this is where, you know, we all knows where the truth starts and ends nowadays. I mean, it's worse right. now with social media and vloggers and bloggers and opportunists, they can all be in this movie, you know, all every single one of them. Yeah. You would cast this now with uh, all of the wretched people that are in my mm-hmm. like class onion, where you've got, you know, Christine is taking selfies of herself for Instagram. And, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just well, different means. Yeah. And you know, the technology is really a big thing in this movie. It's subtle, but it keeps coming up. Oh yes. Um, the whole thing with all his little mechanical toys and the, yeah. And the first thing that the first thing that that kind of drew me to that the mechanical toy thing was at the beginning that first one we see him with is the bird and he's so he's so careful with it and he's so excited by it and all this stuff and then what 20 30 minutes later they're out there and they're blasting the real birds out of the sky you know so he's like he, he just he worships these little mechanical birds while he's out there destroying the real ones and doesn't think anything about it. But there's also the, I mean, there's the technology of the transatlantic flight. There's a technology of the radio, which spread his embarrassing statement to the whole country in a matter of seconds. There's the player piano that we see. There is even, although this went back much further, but I guess it was, something unique because it was so small but the the spyglass that she sees robert and genevieve through oh right um so you know there's a lot of talk and and my son who is a philosophy and english major was a philosophy and english major and he, i watched this with him last week i wanted him to see it and he liked it and he said jesus you know it reminded me of something we read he goes what the heck was that guy's name so he looked it up, and it was it was a Frenchman named Auguste de Vignier de Isle Adam. Okay, I have no idea. I have no idea what I just said, but I think that's the guy's name. But in yeah, I don't know if this was in a play or in a book, and he wrote Lynn question mark Our servants will do that for us. Uh, so it kind of ties into the whole thing too that they're not they're just so disconnected. Yeah, from living life, you know, they're either playing with it in toys or observing it or, you know, or having someone else do it for them. Whole class thing and the whole technology thing, I think, fits together in a very interesting way, too, in this movie. The more you both talk about the technology, 
in this film, the more it stands out to me more and more. Like I, I mean, I certainly saw it, but not to the extent that that you guys are both describing. And, and that is so true because we think here we are today with, and I'm guilty of it myself. You know, phones, computers. We're just so absorbed in social media, and and just like that. That's why I feel like we all have this this parts of our personality like these like these people unfortunately these superficial aspects and yeah robert is i mean at one point he i think he loses something a part a part of one of his gadgets like freaks out of one of his gadgets and like he has more feeling for this than anyone else he's like where the hell did it go he's like he loses a like, screw he loses yeah, screw. a screw yeah. it's like he lost a child you know like <laughs> a screw got loose Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ah, there you go. I just wanted to mention the acting in general. I know we touched on the acting, but it's all so true. It feels so modern and realistic and truthful and spontaneous. And when you watch, I mean, I love American films in the 30s, but the if you watch the acting in the early 30s, it was still quite inventive and they indicated the emotion and showed the emotion and they were still trying to find a way to be real on screen and it really didn't happen until the mid to late 40s and 50s with the exception of some actors in the 30s not everybody but here when i watch and wasp films and some other that i've seen recently like hotel de nord a carnet film i'm thinking where did these people learn how to be so real on film? They seem to be ahead of the Amer- Americans at this point. Uh, we think of the Americans, the method and Stanislavski, the Americans being like the earth of like realistic acting on film. But, you know, yeah, maybe in America, but in film in general. I mean, here, it, what's that one character's name? I couldn't believe how how much it came right out of his out of his guts, the character who was the other oh, oh, David again, Marseille, Julian Caret, when he first is being reprimanded by Schumacher, Schumacher, I should say, and Robert comes and he tries to break it up, and this guy's a bully, and they're fighting, and he's like, "I got a sick mother," and he, and Schumacher, <laughs> you don't have a sick mother, and then he turns to him up, and it sounds so much better in French. But when he says, me, I don't have a sick mother. Me, I don't have a sick mother. And I'm thinking, wow, he, <laughs> he doesn't just stop and yell the line. It's right out of his gut. And I thought, yeah, that's like, reminded me of like Marlon Brando, Montgomery Clip. Like they seem to just be ahead. Where these guys learned how to act, I don't know. Maybe they just had incredible instincts. But that, me, was like, whoa. Added to the energy, certainly. But also how Renoir directed. I mean, apparently he was like adamant when they rehearse or... Or when they were like just reading the script, he was like, don't put any inflection on it. He really made sure they didn't plan it, that they didn't invent it. He was able, Bazine said he was able to just work with actors. How he did it, I have no idea. But that really popped out to me was just the extraordinary power of the performers. Yeah, I I read that too, where he wanted them to read it without emotion until until they had it, until they absorbed it. And then, yes. you know, he wanted them to just put it on the screen. But, you know, what else is, is interesting when you compare, when you're talking about comparing the actors in America at this time, uh, you're seeing in this film, 
And then is remember that the Americans, as we know very well from a film like Singing in the Rain, <laughs> had so much trouble perfecting the use of sound. And, and that's what American filmmaking, when you think about it, that's what it was about, was perfection and control. Everything right. was in that controlled environment. And again, this is 1939, and he's using natural sound, he's using yeah. on-location photography, and he's using these really long scenes. Hollywood was doing none of those things yet, you know, as a rule, you know? Right. So I would think that maybe, especially the long scenes where, because he doesn't, he uses the panning, he uses the, the, you know, those wide shots and those deep shots. And I, I would think it would give the actors a little more freedom instead of yeah, yeah, shooting 10 seconds of a scene and then saying, okay, let's break this down and reset yeah. and all that. So I would, I would think that's got to contribute to it, but I'm not a, oh, certainly, I'm not a family, but yeah. Well, as, um, as an actor myself, <laughs> I guess I should cut, put my actor hat on. And yeah, as from my experience as an actor, certainly when you get that freedom, it is helps tremendously. And I hadn't thought of the sound because that's true. Like I, because I believe in the early days of sound, I think in in Cindy Lumet's book, Making Movies, he talked about how like it was impossible for the actors. Like they literally would like make them wait before they could say their line until the sound. The, was perfect or the, the boom mic was right on them. I don't know. I'm probably not detailing that, you know, accurately, but in general, what I'm getting at was that they, they made it harder and harder for the actors. So I'm sure that certainly led to it being difficult to, to be real. Whereas here it's like, wow, this is, you know, so modern. Yeah. No, I think that, I think that's got to contribute to it somewhat. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. For sure. The only other little note I had was uh, I love, you know, we mentioned the niece who was attracted to Andre and you see in the hunt how they were kissing a little bit and she, and she was the one really flirting with him and she, oh, any, she's like, any, uh, any reason for you to kiss me again? And then he's like, no, I can't do this. <laughs> I'm in love with your aunt. I'm like, man, whatever. That's okay. Like, just, <laughs> just go with it. You know, like right. she's a beautiful woman, but again, he's uh He's he's so connected to his his feelings and his feelings are so strong and which again I admired about it but on the other hand I was kind of like just just go with this moment you have with this this beautiful uh, this young woman here uh, it was interesting because she was also the niece of Christine you know which was she's clearly a much younger woman as well and I thought it was really fascinating how he stuck to he stuck to his guns but. Yeah, I mean, I could talk, man. I could go, I could go all day on this film. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, the only, so many moments. The only other thing I want to mention is, um, is Marcel Dalio, who played who played Christine's husband, because I love character actors. In France, he was a very important actor. Apparently, at this point in time, uh, again, you know that Renoir had used him. In Grand Illusion, and he was so big and so important and so well known that he's billed as Dalio. Right. Not billed as Marcel Dalio, he's billed as Dalio. Uh, and he is the only one, I believe, out of those, that group of actors 
who uh, came to America and made a lot of films here in America. And of course, oh, wow. probably most famously, he was a croupier in uh, in uh, Casablanca. Right. Oh, he worked so many times. I thought with, he looked. Uh, I thought he looked familiar. Yeah. Yeah. He worked so many times with Bogart. It wasn't even funny because he was in really and to have and have not as well. Yeah. That's right. He was in the have and have not. Yep. I forgot he was. Wow. Rita, you're right. Yeah. No, he was a great. He was a great actor, and I loved him. He came here and did more character parts, but of course, he was also older by then as well. But right. Yeah, he was tremendous. I think he was great. I love him. He's got such a face. I mean, all these actors have such faces, but yeah, I, he was so fascinating to watch and just, you know, it's like I said before, there is no protagonist in this movie because it's just like, well, is it Robert? Is it this character? And whenever Robert is on screen, he's the star. And I'm just like, what is he going to do next? You know, and you really yeah. never tell you can see the stuff going on in his head. It was kind of hard to not like him in a ways because he was so funny and so... He just has this certain spunk. And one thing I did notice that Renoir does in this film is that, I mean, he's using satire, yes, and farce. And so you, you feel that he's he's making fun of this society. But he doesn't just say these are these are all these people are all totally, totally, totally awful. There are moments of consciousness, like with like Robert at a certain point when he's talking to Marseille, he he says he says, uh Oh man, and I'm I'm hurting these women. Why do I do this? And so, but then on the flip side, he immediately is is racist and say, "If I was only Arab, I would I would I would be able to." And I'm like, again, just the casual racism. And you see how normal racism is. Like moment I mentioned earlier with the chef talking about quitting a job because the you know, as he puts it, the Jewish people ate like eat like pigs. Or even that big woman again who, who demanded the sea salt when she's talking to Catherine's, uh, Christine's niece about what she's studying. And she says pre-Columbian art. And she's like, oh, you mean at the time uh, with, uh, before the uh, the black people came to America? She's like, no, no, no. Yeah, well, as they said back then, Indian people. And she's like, oh, yeah, Buffalo Bill. <laughs> and I'm like, again, just like not looking at us as people as humans. It's like you're a label. You're a, a black person. You're a Jewish person. You're a quote-unquote buffalo bill it's like everyone's like a thing and what whatever that thing is it must mean that you're like this is how you behave and that's it which is just the definition of racism just <laughs> label and and summing people up based on your own perceptions and biases so but just does it so it's like it's not like anyone stops to say wow that was awful or that a close-up of someone going just giving a reaction like man these people are 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 terrible Never. It's just, you know, someone says it, camera pans to the next conversation. Yeah. It was the rules of the game. The thing, <laughs> I, the thing I liked about the Arab comment was he said, in saying to Marceau, he says, I think he says, don't you ever wish you were an Arab? And Marceau, right. and Marceau says, why? <laughs> Marceau doesn't know what yeah, he means. He's bound. And then he, then he says, a Arab. You know, like, like it, should be, it should be obvious because you could have a harem of women. And I don't know if he's, if Marceau says something, but he does say something at one point in that conversation where he says to, to Robert, well, it's easier for you because you have money. Remember, he says something right. about you've got right. money. He says, I have to make them laugh. And then while I catch them off guard and get them laughing, then I can take advantage of them. <laughs> right. Yeah. And Robert says, 
I can't do that. And he says, why? He says, because that takes talent. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they wrote the book on the game or something. All of a sudden, like, again, talking about women, you know, uh, in, in terms of, of objects. Right. Also, is it an, an, another way of not seeing humans? Right. Uh, it's just brilliant. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. That's right. We are wrapping up French month next week with a look at Louis Benuel's Lodge d'Or. Until then, I want to thank my co-host Otto and Robert for joining me today. So Robert, what is keeping you busy, sir? Uh, I have my YouTube channel, which keeps me, keeps me busy on my exploration of film. So if people want to check out the, the vlogcast, I suppose, or vodcast, I suppose you call it, if it's a video, uh, it's www.youtube.com slash Robert Bellissimo at the movies. And I'm also on Twitter at RB at the movies, a little different and Instagram and Facebook is the same as the YouTube channel at Robert Bellissimo at the movies. So I do about six episodes a month with guests where we just do deep dive explorations, similar to, to Mike just exploring storytelling on film in general is sort of, sort of the focus of the podcasts as well as interviews with people who work in film and television and theater yeah so i'm also an actor and acting teacher and i teach virtually still even in the somewhat post-pandemic world so if you're looking for a class you could go to my website rbelissimo.ca and Otto, how about yourself well mike is the senior member of this trio i'm less <laughs> am- i'm less ambitious than you guys are i uh no, I do my, I do a weekly radio program that people can listen to on Sundays from 12 to 2. They stream all over the, the world on their website at jazz901.org. And uh, as you know, Mike, you know, I'm still promoting the book. Barney Miller and the Files of the Old One Two. I've taught some classes on it, and I've, you know, gone around to different groups discussing it. And, and now I have started another book. I'm not going to say what it is yet because I want to get a little deeper into it, but I, it took me months to figure out what I was going to do, and I finally made a decision. I, I'll tell you off, Mike, but... I can only hope that it's a book of all about Victor Bono. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. And you can even hear Otto when we talk about Barney Miller over at the Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller. That's available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.